The last time I taught this subject, the relation of the Christian to government, it almost resulted in a fist fight. Now, I might be exaggerating, but not by much. I'll tell you the story sometime. No, you're not getting it tonight. <laughs> I got to have some mystery in my life. All right, we were teaching at, uh, I was teaching through Romans at the Calvary Bible College Extension Campus in Fresno, and I made some comments like I'm going to make tonight, <laughs> and uh, actually, well, and there was a guy there who's a, and love, God love him, you know, he was a patriot, thought I was being unpatriotic, and um, an argument ensued. We never did get out of verse one, uh, so... Uh, it's very interesting. Christians, especially conservative Christians like most of us, are very interested in the subject of civil government. Eavesdrop on conversations after church, not just on a night like tonight when we're talking about government, but anytime. And nine times out of ten, people are talking about government and politics. I want to tell you. I have what I consider to be a control belief through which I approach the text, and this is it. Christians all over the world in every nation hold a dual citizenship, but one citizenship must take priority over the other. We are citizens of heaven first, then we're citizens of our nation, in our case, the United States. As citizens of heaven, we're also called upon to be ambassadors on the earth in every nation that we find ourselves. Now, one more thing before we dig in, start unpacking the text a little bit. The key word for our understanding of all seven verses is going to be subject. The key concept will be subjection. It's not my idea. We see it in verse 1 and then again in verse 5. It's the hinge, really, on which this door turns for Paul. When we might have a doubt about what to say about these verses or what Paul really meant, we'll fall back on our being in subjection as an overriding spiritual principle. And so verse 1, let's see if we can get out of verse 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Let every soul means every human being anywhere on the planet at any time in history, including both believers and non-believers. It's a very sweeping category of people. It's everybody. They are, we are, required by God to be subject to the governing authorities. Now, this word subject means exactly what you think it means means things like submissive and obedient. Paul wasn't alone in telling us to be subject to rulers in authority. The apostle Peter said it too in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Subjection certainly includes external compliance, but it implies more. Subjection focuses on the spirit or the attitude of the individual, which leads to compliance. If you're a parent, you understand this. You want your children to be obedient. They can obey, but they can do it the wrong way, with the wrong attitude, with the wrong heart. You can get them to do 
what you need them and want them to do, but you want them to want to do it because it's the right thing to do because they love you. Subjection is that kind of word. It's not just I do what I have to because I'm under duress. It means I want to subject myself. Uh, and so bear that in mind. Again, this is the Bible's word, not my word. I don't want to be subject any more than you do, uh, but we're dealing with the word of God. Now, the words that exist, it says here, uh, the, the authorities that exist, that means all human authority is delegated by God, whether it's democratic or not, whether heathen or God-fearing, every government which has the power to rule over its people has been granted that power and authority by God. One author put it this way, a government's existence is proof that it is ordained of God and that it possesses divinely delegated authority. And like you, I say, how can that be? Can Iran really be a government granted power and authority by God? And the answer is, yes, it can, because God is sovereign, meaning at the very least that he has oversight of all things, including all the human government that exists. Now, we're going to see the standards that God has for nations in just a minute, if we get out of verse 1. <laughs> a nation like Iran certainly does not live up to God's standards for government. He will ultimately hold them accountable. In the meantime, their authority has been delegated by him, and its citizens are required to be in subjection. Now, it's at this point we normally appeal to civil disobedience that is demanded when government calls upon us to disobey God, and that's true. We must obey God rather than man, rather than the civil authorities. Absolutely. But let me say a couple things about civil disobedience. First, when the Bible tells us to obey God rather than civil government, it's talking about a direct conflict with the commandments of God or the preaching of the gospel. It isn't talking about the myriad of political issues we may disagree with at any one time. And second, if and when you disobey civil authorities, you're to do so in subjection. There's our word again. We have significant instances of civil disobedience in the Bible to show us what it means to disobey civil authorities in subjection. In Daniel chapter 3, Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're commanded to bow down before an image of gold. Nebuchadnezzar sets up this image in the plains of Dura, I think it is. He says, everybody's going to bow down and worship my image they refused, and rightly so, for they could not serve God and bow down to an idol. Now, these guys, they had a tough time, Daniel and these three boys, in this godless, wicked Babylonian government. Every day was a challenge for them. There was nothing godly about it. They, were, they had trouble with their diet. They had trouble everywhere they looked. But finally, when Nebuchadnezzar blew his cork and he said, I'm going to get worshipped as God, they said, we're not going to bow. We cannot bow. We draw the line here. They disobeyed, however, in subjection. They did not refuse to obey all the king's commands, only this one. They knew that that disobedience might cost them their lives. They were willing to pay the price. They did not advocate the overthrow of the government and they were willing to submit to the death penalty if necessary. In fact, I would say that they did submit to the death penalty. It's just that it didn't work. 
Nebuchadnezzar, he said, you guys, I really want you guys to bow down. I think he liked them. Daniel, good guy, his friends, good guys. He kept giving them chances, and they said, Nebuchadnezzar, buddy, listen, we serve God. We're not going to bow down to your idol. Either God's going to deliver us, or you're going to kill us. Either way, we're going to win. And so Nebuchadnezzar, remember, he got mad. He heated the fire up in the furnace seven times normal. His guards took them and threw them in. The guards that were handling them burned up alive. And these guys walked around unscathed. And Nebuchadnezzar looked in, and he saw what? A fourth person in there. And he said, it looks like the Son of God. And we know that it was an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. Uh, And so that's how they approached civil disobedience. Acts chapter 5. The Sanhedrin demand that the apostles, Peter and John, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. They said, yeah, we can't do that. We need to obey God rather than man. Though they could not and would not stop preaching about their resurrected Lord, they didn't challenge the authority of the Sanhedrin. Their answer was evidence of their subjection. They said, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. That's Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. And so uh, this is the kind of civil disobedience that we see at least exampled in the Bible. Now, I often hear Christians in America, here's where I'm going to get into trouble. Now, please don't rush the stage. Uh, Often I hear Christians in America refer to what the founding fathers intended per the Constitution of the United States. Their point is that our country is not really being governed the way intended. I might agree, but let's apply what we've learned from God's Word to our unique and great nation. Paul didn't say, let every soul be subject to the government that the founding fathers intended. Did he say that? No. He didn't say, let every soul be subject to the government when it's living up to God's ideal standards for it. No, he said, the authorities that exist right now are appointed by God. It doesn't indicate they're right or good or godly, but it does mean we're to obey or be in subjection in our civil disobedience. Now, it might be helpful to remember when Paul wrote these words, the government that existed was that of Caesar Nero. I don't need to tell you he was a nut job. The emperor was not known for being a godly person. He engaged in a variety of illicit activities, homosexual marriage being among them. In 64 AD, the great Roman fire occurred with Nero himself being suspected of the act of arson. He wanted to clear some land for a building project he had going. And so he set Rome on fire. He wasn't playing with a full deck. In his writings to the Roman senator and historian Tacitus recorded, and I quote, to get rid of the report that he had started the fire, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abomination called Christians by the populace. And so bear in mind that when Paul wrote these words, this is what was happening in the government of Rome. That was the government that existed, the government of Caesar Nero. Now, I'm quick to add that in a country like ours, the Bible doesn't forbid us from being active in politics, from speaking out against things, from advocating change, etc. I'm definitely not saying that whatever the government decides is right or that we can't protest or pass initiatives. That's all well and good. Our government especially gives us great leeway, lots of rights. 
There's a part in the Declaration of Independence which says we can even establish a new government if we want to. And, and so it's still a tricky area, but it's not as... Uh, it's not as open for interpretation as most people think. I'm only saying what the Bible says, that ultimately we're required to be subject to the governing authorities, and if we must disobey, we're to do it with the right spirit. There is a prevailing attitude in Christianity. I believe this is the prevailing attitude in Christianity, and it's that any acts of government that are not rooted and grounded in God's word are acts of tyranny and they may or must be resisted. Francis Schaeffer, the great Christian philosopher, articulated that position. He said this, the basic principle of civil government and therefore law must be based on God's law as given in the Bible. Since the ruler is granted power conditionally, it follows that the people have the power to withdraw their sanction if the proper conditions are not fulfilled. In other words... A government must follow these strict conditions and guidelines in order to be entitled to any obedience at all from its people. A government that fails to meet these qualifications, according to Schaefer, can and must be disobeyed. The two obvious problems with that perspective, number one, is that Paul's teaching to be subject to the government was at a time when the government was certainly not based upon God's law as given in the Bible. Yet he's the one exhorting believers to be in subjection to it, not to resist it. And so Schaefer and this kind of attitude that, well, if the government doesn't agree with God, then we just jettison the government because we must obey God rather than man. No, that's in very specific instances. Paul understood the oppression of government. And he said in the midst of it, and this would have been just as radical, I don't know if he ever got out of verse 1 when his letter was read. Because, you know, people would think, don't you know who the Caesar is? Don't you know what's happening? Don't you know there's homosexual marriage? Don't you know Rome was set on fire? There's nothing godly about this man. And Paul said, well, let's be in subjection to the civil authorities. And uh, if you want to not be in subjection to them, let's do it uh, with a submissive spirit. And the second obvious point is that it, it's, no, it's no sweat to be in subjection to something you already agree with. If Paul is saying, be subject to the greatest government on earth, nobody gets up and says, man, it's going to be hard to submit to the greatest government on the earth. You're happy. You want to. And so there's no subjection involved. It's just going along. And so that cannot be true. What Schaefer said really can't be true. All right, we're getting out of verse 1 into verse 2. Aren't you glad? Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist... Bring judgment on themselves. I take this to mean that short of the government telling me to sin or to deny Christ or to quit sharing the gospel, if I resist civil authorities, I'm really resisting God himself. William McDonald said, and I quote, believers can live victoriously in a democracy, a constitutional monarchy, or even a totalitarian regime. Going back to our example, especially of Daniel and his three friends, don't you love that story? The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on the plain of Dura, everybody else bowing down and them standing before the Lord with, you know, with that passive resistance. Or Daniel in the lion's den. So they tell me I can't pray, I'm going to pray, and they're going to throw me in the lion's den, so be it. And we think, wow, praise the Lord, that's fantastic. Well, you don't get those stories unless you disobey the government in subjection to the authorities. 
and see how God can work. And so what McDonald is saying is that believers can live according to these principles, can live a godly life, can live victoriously in the most oppressive situation, and oftentimes that shines the brightest light on the situation. Now, the judgment I would bring on myself probably from the government, of course, but also a discipline from God. If, if I'm disobeying a government that God has raised up over me uh, and I'm not doing it in subjection to it, then I'm also disobeying God. And so verse 3, for rulers, they're not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? <clears throat> Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. Now, one thing that you see in this verse is that the role government is called to play has a realistic assessment of man's sinfulness. Society is spoiled where sinful man is allowed to engage in all manner of evil, and society will not flourish for the common good where men are allowed to squander their lives on themselves and pursue relentlessly their own self-centered course. And so God has had to give government in order to uh, deal with the fact that men have a sin nature. That's why all these stories about you know, when people have to set up their own government and do their own stuff, you know, Lord of the Flies kind of stuff, you know, where people, um, you see how wicked people can be. There's a famous experiment. It's not about government, but it's about, uh, well, I forget the name of it. You guys will remember, but uh, it was a psychologist, and he, he divided people up into prisoners and guards, and um, he all of a sudden, after like just a couple of days, the prisoners, you know, they didn't really have any standards, and, and the prisoners were being mistreated by the guards. He had to stop the experiment before somebody got killed because people just started acting crazy with the authority that they'd been given. Uh, and, and so the sin nature needs to be governed. We need to have a check to it. The authorities are required by God to punish the evildoer and to reward the one who does right. Now, I know what you're thinking. I'm thinking it too. That's an ideal description. Plenty of governments are corrupt, and they, do, they don't do that, or they do the opposite. They punish those who are good and reward those who are evil. Even if Paul was describing the ideal that government should aspire to, doesn't open the door to my resistance to a more corrupt government. And if I do resist, I must do so in subjection. God will hold that nation accountable. All right, here I am. Verse 4. Let's just jump into verse 4. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He's God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. As servants of God, rulers are expected to promote the good of the people, security, tranquility, general welfare. If any man insists on breaking the law, he can expect to pay for it because the government has the authority to bring him to trial and punish him. Now, this word sword, very carefully chosen, it most definitely indicates capital punishment. If Paul had intended only to say that the authorities can punish or discipline, he could have chosen and would have chosen the word scepter. He would have said that he does not bear the scepter in vain, giving him authority. No, Paul said he bears the sword by which you are killed. And so I, there really is no biblical argument against capital punishment. Now, we can talk about when capital punishment is appropriate and those kinds of things, but capital punishment, the ability of the, of the government to take a life, especially for a life, 
It's the only thing that preserves the dignity and the sanctity of life. It says that life is so sacred that if you take it, you must forfeit your own. And this is de- So the Bible definitely teaches capital punishment. You can get into the nuances of it in your political discussions after church. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it, as a topic, yes, we're, we are for uh, capital punishment. Verse 5, therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath but also for conscience' sake. It isn't only for fear of punishment that you must be subject. The external standard of punishment is the minimum standard for all citizens, believers or non-believers. As a believer, you have a higher standard. You want to maintain a pure conscience before God and men. Conscience is that internal guide of what is right and what is wrong. But as one author said, while we must never do what our conscience condemns, We dare not assume that everything our conscience permits is good since our conscience can become hardened and insensitive. Conscience is not infallible. It must be trained by our reading of the Bible. What does conscience have to do with the subject of uh, being in subjection to the government? Well, let me illustrate. Actually, this isn't my illustration, but I got a chuckle out of it, and I think you will too. It means that I, as a Christian, I mean, this is one of a million different examples we could use, but I think you'll appreciate this. It means that I, as a Christian, should not have a radar detector on my dashboard because having that there indicates that I am going to speed and break the posted speed limit for whatever reason. I think it's safe. I'm in a hurry. It's, I disagree with it. I'm going to break the law unless... I'm in an area where I might get caught for doing it, and then I don't want to pay the fine. I'm willing to pay the fine. It's not the end of the world. But, you know, so this is the kind of nitpicking that Paul is talking about with our conscience where we just normally think, oh, it's no big deal. Come on, everybody does it. It's the flow of traffic to go 95. I mean, after all, who is it hurting? That stop sign, I don't see anybody for miles around, so I'm just going to blow through that stop sign, you know, that kind of a thing. You know, maybe you don't do that. Maybe you never thought about having a radar detector in your car. But that's the kind of thing that, and and you start thinking, well, conscience, yeah, my conscience does me no good when it comes to getting behind the wheel of a car. I turn into Goofy, the driver, you know, that they used to show that movie in school where your foot gets crazy and you're just streaming through things. But Paul would say, well, technically, this is the posted speed limit. You may disagree with it. You know, you don't, maybe you don't think 55 saves lives or seatbelt laws or helmet laws or whatever they might be. Nobody wants to be in subjection to them. But if you actually plan to break them, then your conscience is a little bit seared. And so Paul says you, you should obey the law from a good conscience and uh, not have a radar detector on your chariot or whatever it was, you know, you had in those days. Verse 6, for because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Now, this isn't a comment about economics or Reaganomics, doesn't prefer a philosophy of big government or small government, doesn't mean you can't take advantage of tax loopholes or tax breaks, doesn't mean you have to donate extra money to the government. People do that, by the way. They just, there's always people that just say, hey, I'm not paying enough taxes. I'm going to donate more because I, I love you. You know, I'm really happy with what you're doing with my money. Uh, you know, doesn't mean you can't have an opinion on any of that. 
Paul was simply stating that the government is supported by taxation and therefore it's your responsibility to pay taxes. You may think it's great to live in the wilderness and be in chaos and have all the rifles and bullets you can, but that doesn't work when there's 250 million people who are trying to get along with each other. There's not enough Oregon for that. All right, it just, there isn't. There's just not enough Montana. <laughs> you know, it's just not going to work. And so government, now, I'd be standing in line with you. If, if somebody said, do you think the government's doing a good job with our tax money? I'd say no. But uh, Paul's just saying, hey, be subject to the government. You're going to have to pay taxes. And then he says in verse 7, render therefore all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Taxes and customs speak of your fiscal responsibilities. Fear and honor speak to your spiritual responsibilities. Fear and honor are due to the offices of the civil authorities. Even if we can't respect the personal lives of those holding the offices, we can and should still show fear and honor. Quoting Exodus 22:28, Paul said in Acts 23:5, "You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people." You know, uh, yeah, you're all guilty. You're all guilty. And I challenge you to get through this presidential election showing fear and honor to those who currently hold office. It's a command that we easily disregard. We can't wait to disregard it. We have jokes about him and uh, all kinds of things. Uh, there's, a, there's a limit to it, but really, I, you know, I'm just, I'm busted too here. I mean, Paul, is, he's pretty serious. He says, hey, let's be real Christians in the midst of this. And uh, he says, don't speak evil of a ruler of your people. Even if he's the worst. No, I can't say that. <laughs> See what I mean? So just this alone would eliminate all the political conversations after church, or at least 50% of them. You know, you don't have to speak good, but you can't speak evil, and so you're going to be tongue-tied from now until November, and hopefully not after that. But anyway, catch my meaning there? See, there's a lot of ways you can get around that, but I felt like that was respectful. I did. I was extremely respectful. Um, I mean, because it's still America, and I mean, still, we're still going to vote for one guy or the other, either the president we don't like or the Mormon we don't like. I mean, you know, it's just, <laughs> we, yeah, you know, it's, it's a stretch. This is a really, this is a big stretch this election year. I, I don't know what to do. I, I'm, I'm torn, you know, it's just crazy. Uh, Maybe I'll figure it out, but you'll, you'll have to do it too. Just vote your conscience, I guess. Chuck Smith is too old now to be president, so you can't write him in. But uh, anyway, I titled this message, Conscientious Subjectors. That's a pretty good summary of what my reaction to civil authorities, to earthly government ought to be. I should conscientiously subject myself to the authorities by obedience an obedience that does not prick a pure conscience. Should I be forced to disobey when government wants me to sin or quit sharing the gospel, then I do that in subjection. Amen? Yeah, you just agreed to it now, so anyway. <laughs>